I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro, And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hey, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? What's going on around the home office? You know, the home office is going pretty well. Lots of great work. Um, You know, lots of uh, cool new projects we're working on here at Burke Creative um, and some really cool things with the Honest Field Guide podcast. I think for me, what's going on in the home office really is I'm struggling with wellness, right? I'm struggling with wellness, you know? You and the rest of the world. I've always had some struggle with wellness because I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. You know, I can't slow down. I, I can't take care of myself the way I used to, the way I know I need to. I'm, I'm so busy. Like, I just feel like I need I need some strategies. You know, I need strategies to figure out how to, how to be well. Yeah, I am actually struggling with wellness as well. But I have some things that are my go-to that I do to take care of myself. But with work and feeling the constant need to be productive, sometimes that stuff takes a backseat. So really trying to find a, a good balance. It's also weird to just have my office in my house, which has been like this since we moved in here. But now more than ever, I'm really keenly aware that I could always kind of be working a little bit. Right. Yeah. You know, I I love you for saying that because I kind of feel like the strategies I used to use, I, I, I now realize how much I took them for granted. I can't go to the gym anymore. You know, I'm I'm not being able to go and sit in the steam room in the sauna and just like chill out and veget and vegetate and meditate. You know, I just think that that's something that I really didn't think about too much until now. And I don't even know if I'm if I'll ever feel comfortable going back to that environment. I got a massage the other day and it was you got amazing. A massage? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, that is the epitome of wellness. You got a massage. And I need Yeah, one. it was so worth it. It was so worth it. I had to be dragged there because I was like, my back is killing me. I had to get dragged to the massage therapy place. But when I was on that table, shout out to Steven. So wait, are we, (laughs) so are you, is this what you're going to be doing? Are you feeling like confident now that you can just do this at least like once every other week? Or you're feeling like I'm going to do it. I'm not going to stop myself at this point, no matter what's going on in the world. It's not about no matter what's going on in the world because I had to wear a mask. They do have guidelines in place. So there are guidelines for for those types of places, whether you're talking about getting a mani or pedi or or getting a massage. So I'm always keenly aware of the cleanliness of things around me and if people are following the rules and... (laughs) I think they did a pretty good job there. So yes, this is the woman. I will, who will be going who, back. This is the woman who won't sit on a booth seat, you know, or sit on the. There's really uncomfortable on the, the chairs at the airport. Don't well, ever look in the corners of any public seating. <laughs> you will. <laughs> like, here's my plane ticket. I don't want to go. Today, I'm excited because we have a guest. His name is Nicholas Whitaker. You know, not only is he Google Strategic Partner Lead for News and Local Media, but he's a mindfulness and wellness coach. And um, 
I know. Before that, though, he ran his own company called Whitaker Film. So he's he's been an entrepreneur for a long time, but now he's he's working with the big guys and the big gals. And I'm I'm excited to talk to him so we can understand how in the world did he decide to leave entrepreneurship and go back inside. So I want to know how he got the courage and what did he do to get back into it? Because, you know, now in this environment, you're kind of like, you know what? Maybe this entrepreneurship thing. not looking so bad. I know, right? Corporate's looking pretty good. This entrepreneur thing is like looking kind of scary. Like, what's up? For the past decade, Nicholas Whitaker has leveraged the scale and resources of Google to support the journalism industry through high-impact educational products, programs, and strategic partnerships, reaching more than a half a million journalists worldwide. Before joining Google, Nicholas produced media for news, commercial entertainment, and advocacy groups, and taught video production and communication theory at several top universities and colleges in New York City. Outside of Google, Nicholas draws from his 20-plus years of mindfulness practice, extensive study of emotional intelligence, resilience, and the impact of technology on well-being. Nick coaches people on managing stress, avoiding and recovering from burnout, and finding balance through practical and evidence-based strategies. So, Nicholas, welcome. Thank welcome, you. Nick. Hello. Did you did you did you love how I how I said you're like back in the pen? <laughs> you know, I, I get it. You know, I feel like 10, 13 years ago, I felt the same way. You know, it's like, I don't know if I want to go in. I don't know if I want to go in. But I tell you, I'm glad I did. Wow. These days. Where did you grow up? What did you want to be when you grow up? And were your parents entrepreneurs? Like, what's your early, what was your early life like? My parents, I would say, they never considered themselves entrepreneurs, but they're small business owners. You know, my dad owned his own business for most of my childhood. Uh, he was working in the American steel industry at the time. and was actually building these massive, uh, like, industrial equipment for steel plants, which at the time was a great industry. But, you know, towards the middle of late 90s, that whole industry collapsed very quickly. Um, and he was basically left without a pivot, left without uh, an area to go to. And honestly, never really recovered in a lot of ways. You know, so my mom worked for my dad. You know, so the two of them, they were running a small business for the better part of my childhood. And I think that's what really planted the seed for me early on was, you know, there are alternatives to working in a corporate environment. There's alternatives to working a nine to five. And that was something that was always really encouraging to me. Um, and I grew up in a relatively small town. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, which was basically corn country. Um, you didn't have a lot of job opportunities uh, where I was growing up. You know, you could work in a factory. You could maybe work at like a distribution center for like raw stress for less, which I actually worked at for a little bit. Um, you could work on a farm. You could go into the military. You know, that, that was kind of the, the, the list, you know, and especially if you were somebody who didn't grow up of means or, you know, if like education wasn't really highly valued from a cultural standpoint, there really were very, very few options available. So, you know, I think while I've had a lot of pivots and a lot of twists and turns, to me, it was always an op uh, looking at opportunity and trying to figure out, like, how can I improve my quality of life? How can I improve my overall uh, ability to make decisions for myself? You know, you're kind of kidding a little bit about this idea of, like, coming from freedom to, to prison, you know, from the, the freelance lifestyle and entrepreneurial lifestyles. It's really about perspective and what you're bringing to whatever opportunities you have available to you. And I would actually 
say that the reason that I jumped into corporate America was out of desperation and out of a, uh, a very serious need that needed to be fulfilled. Because that was like right towards the end of the economic collapse, uh, 2008 to 2010 or so. My family's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So when you talk about desperation, I completely understand that. I think, uh, you know, my my father, um, my, my grandfather, rather, my mother's father was a Pullman porter and um, definitely way, way older than us. Um, but there, there was a lot of poverty in Pittsburgh. Um, my, my grandfather didn't have as much poverty because he was a Pullman porter. So the family had a lot of resources because of that job he had. But um, I can see, you know, leaving a place like Pittsburgh or anywhere in Pennsylvania, frankly, people look out to, to try to figure out what, they're, what, what, what kind of a better life they can have. I will say the thing that's interesting to me about Pittsburgh is there's a lot of people that actually never leave Pittsburgh and they've been there forever. And the ones that leave um, find a lot of success. I don't know what it means. I mean, you know, I mean, Andy Warhol is probably the most famous person from Pennsylvania, right? I, I just am curious. So, I mean, were you entrepreneurial? Were you were you creative? Were you did you have siblings that built things? Were you selling things in a lemonade stand? What was the, <laughs> what was the, what was happening? I was a creative nerd. You know, that was really kind of my game when I was in middle school and high school. Music, theater, uh, creative arts. Uh, I got into videography and video early. I guess I don't think it was even called videography back then. I think it was just like you had a camcorder. Um, you know, I was doing short documentaries in middle school, you know, so I was always curious and I was always trying to tell stories. I was trying to get a better understanding of the world around me. I don't really think that I had a, a proper entrepreneurial spirit until I kind of got later into high school. And I was trying to figure out like, well, there's got to be more here. There's got to be more opportunities early on into, I guess you would consider an entrepreneurial endeavor working in the coffee industry. You know, I was doing a lot of like training for coffee shops in the early days. I mean, this is pre-Starbucks, you know, so all up and down the East Coast, there was suddenly like, a huge demand for coffee shops and you know these types of endeavors. So I was doing a lot of work in those particular spaces. But really, I mean, I think calling it entrepreneurialism at that point in my life is is using a very big word for a very <laughs> very small uh, concept is survival. You know, it was literally like just like how do I find the next gig? How do I make more money? How do I leverage the skills that I do have? How do I grow the skills that I don't have? How do I position myself better for the future? And I mean, it took me through something like 36 jobs in the period of like 10 years. Um, 36 like, jobs in 10 years? Yeah, everything from like, you know, bouncing at bars to working at, you know, managing restaurants to working at coffee shops to, you know, doing delivery bike riding. It was everything you could possibly imagine um, just to get ahead. What did you say yes to that led you into your main business? I said yes to my roommate. Uh, who at the time, his mother uh, was working at a bariatric bypass surgery uh, facility. So stomach stabling, basically. So if you become morbidly obese, they've tried everything else that they possibly can. Uh, and they're trying to like quickly reduce your weight. They'll put a little rubber band or some sort of like a surgery suture that actually closes up your stomach. So they wanted somebody to do a video, uh, a promotional video for this. And I had expressed an interest in film school at that point. And he was like, hey, you know, would you be interested in, in doing something like this? It seems like this is something you might be qualified to do. And I said, absolutely. And then that weekend, I taught myself how to edit on Final Cut. <laughs> was this the beginning of your vision around your business? Did you see something at this point? You're like, this is it. I found it. Yeah. Well, I, I, what I found more than anything was like, this is not working in restaurants. 
you know, this is this is working beyond shift work, where my value is is measured by the hour. You know, this is a this is an opportunity to to move into creativity, to help tell stories, to help inform people, and help create. And I think that was really as far as I had thought about it at that point, because it's still at that point. I mean, the money was probably more than I had ever seen before in one lump sum for anything that I had done. Um, but I still didn't really see it as like, oh, this is going to be a future career for me. It was like, okay, listen, let's not mess this one up. You know, like, let's, let's do this one right, and hopefully something good will come of it. What were you afraid of at that time when you first started making that money and you're like, oh, I have a business? <laughs> what was your biggest fear? Everything. <laughs> everything was terrifying. I mean, it was, you know, everything from just figuring out, like, billing, like, what does an invoice look like? Uh, you know, how do you send that? You know, how do you chase down money? What are the terms for payment? Like all of these things were new to me. You know, and I was able to borrow from some degree off of my parents' education, but it was a very different industry and it was knowledge that was good 20 years out of date at that point. So a lot of it was just, you know, the fear really was losing the opportunity. You know, and that has always been the fear. During this this period where you started seeing like quote unquote real money and realizing, wow, there's actually value in what I'm doing now. When did it become a business for you? What was that process? Did someone tell you, look, you're really killing it here. You got to start thinking about this for real, for real. I need you on a regular basis. What happened? Yes, I had a couple of things. So it wasn't an aha moment. I think it was a series of little things that happened over a long period of time. Only in hindsight does any of it make any sense. Uh, At the time, it was literally just like grabbing at the next ring, just hoping that, you know, I would have enough strength to be able to pull myself up to the next one. So, and I think there was a a period in time where I had a series of gigs all at the same time. You know, and I I think the same problem of all these other jobs that I had that I was doing one right after the other. This whole time I had a production company. I was also doing other things at the same time. I was teaching at universities. I had a couple of quasi-permanent uh, jobs. This was back in the day where I think they were calling it permalancing. I don't know if they're still, still referencing it in that way, but essentially like you're a freelance, but like for permanent. Um, so I was working for CBS and a couple other organizations where they would just give you just enough hours uh, to keep you close to full time and kind of hook you, but not enough to actually get benefits and all that. Uh, so I was doing a little bit of moonlighting during those types of gigs. And it, it occurred to me, I was like, I could actually do a lot of what I'm getting billed for or what I'm billing for on my own. Like, I don't need the intermediaries that I was working through. Um, and so the agencies that I was doing business with. So I started taking on some more, more and more clients. And honestly, at this time, it was Mandy.com, Craigslist, word of mouth was really what was getting me gigs. And a lot of the jobs that I was doing on the side, like working commercials as a production assistant, were actually feeder opportunities to get me editing gigs or video production gigs on lower paying shoots. So I think there was there was a period in time where I, I finally got to where I only the, the only clients that I had, the only work that I was doing were clients that I had sourced myself. You know, and I had a couple of gigs for Macy's. I had a couple of gigs for uh, the Department of Transportation. You know, and I had a collection enough of work and I was paying all the bills. And I was actually able to bring on another couple of people to help support the work that I was doing. And that was really the moment for me. It was like, oh, I'm supporting myself and supporting a few other people as well. This is a journey of the unlikely entrepreneur or the unintentional entrepreneur. (laughs) It's like, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's the opposite of me. I mean, I, I had intention from the very beginning. Like there was never 
any mistake in what I was doing. I had a process and a plan and I still operate that way. Um, it doesn't sound, it sounds like you're just like, you were winging it. I was winging it. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I would love to say, yeah, I totally had a vision and a plan. I was going step by step. No, <laughs> not at all. And it was always out of hand. The entire time it was out of hand. You know, and, and, and I think one of the things that a lot of people are hard on themselves about is as entrepreneurs and as small business owners is like this myth that somehow there's easy streaks, you know, and there's periods of time where it just like works and it clicks without a lot of effort and energy and stress and sleepless nights and everything else. So no, like, I think it was always a bit of a panic scenario, but you know, I, I did, I did have a handful of uh, scenarios where, you know, people took me aside and honestly, they set the elevator back down and they really gave me an opportunity to wake myself up into this new possibility. And this, this one individual in particular, this guy, Rich, he was a business partner first. You know, he actually jumped on this project with me and he helped manage the back end, the actual, uh, the books, managing the, the relationship with the Department of Transportation, doing a lot of the stuff I just didn't have the skills to do. And at one point, I mean, straight up, he pulled me aside and he was like, you have to stop thinking like a blue collar person or you will be one the rest of your life. And at the time, I didn't get it. I was pissed. And it was like a big F you kind of like response to that at the time. Wait, but why, why were you it. pissed? Because you didn't want to be blue collar or no, what was no, this? What I, is, I, I why were you pissed about that? I get it. I took pride in it. You know, oh. I was like, I came up from those roots, you know, like those are good people. They work and they put their hours in, you know, like that's, that's what makes for a good man is like someone that's willing to go and like do the work, you know? And for some reason I had this conflated idea that like that type of labor, the labor of your body, the labor of, you know, showing up and putting in time, like somehow that was a measure of success. You know, I was like, oh, I put the hours in. And I, and I think what he was trying to tell me, and again, I didn't dawn on me until years later. I didn't really put it together. But I think what he was telling me is like, think bigger, like have more self-respect. You know, you're worth more than this and you're capable of more. And I think that was really what kind of pushed me for, far enough to continue and, and start thinking of myself not as a wage earner that was just going in and punching a clock or showing up and doing a task. It was like, no, I could, I could be valued for my strategic thinking. I could be valued for my ability to extrapolate data. I can be a person who's valued for not just showing up, but actually providing outsized value with the time that I have. So... Um... Asking around this, so I, I I love that you said panic because <laughs> it's like entrepreneurship is 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 rife with panic all the time, and you have to find ways to hide that panic so you can you know get your job done and get the money and everything all that stuff. Your mentor Rich said, you know, stop thinking like a blue po- blue collar guy. Your your value is way more than your hours. You know, putting in. How long were you in that space before you? became comfortable or were you never comfortable? Right. I mean, still not okay. never comfortable. Okay. Never comfortable. Yeah. No, I think, I think for me, it's, it, that's part of the duality of the whole experience is like, it took me well into my career at Google, but before I even started looking at myself as somebody who wasn't still in that space, you know, as my wife used to joke around with me a lot, like my, my wardrobe was like Carhartt chic, like construction worker chic, you know, it was like, utilitarian cargo pants, cargo, like, you know, ripstop clothing, like things that you could go out on a production shoot and toss gear around and not have to worry about it getting torn up. Um, I mean, there was a, there's a utility to that. And there's also like, it was just affordable, you know, as, as well. And it took me a long time to realize, you know, I think it was actually when I bought my first car, my, like my first new car, uh, several years after 
working full time for Google that it kind of dawned on me. It was like, oh, I can actually afford these kinds of things. You know, like I'm not I'm not still scraping by. I'm not still eating ramen noodles like I've I've got a good thing here. And it's it's never been a real comfortable position for me. And I think it's something I still struggle with. But and I think that the struggle is more survivor's guilt now than anything. Hearing you talk about this from things being out of hand to having to shift your mental model of what it means to to be a business owner and make money. How did you manage those mental shifts and that stress? When did that self-care practice start? Yeah, clumsily, terribly. You know, I think um, it was a lot of tumultuous kind of fraught uh, years. You know, I think it was a lot of damage with personal relationships. I'm, I'm sh- I, shout out to all my ex-girlfriends uh, who tolerated <laughs> me during those times. You know, for me, it was like really just trying to grapple with the next step. You know, it was always for me like, okay, what's the very next most important thing? And, and for a long time, I mean, that mentality came out of living paycheck, paycheck to paycheck. You know, it was like, okay, do I pay rent this month or do I buy groceries? You know, and that, those were the choices I had to make at that period of my life. Do I continue living in a car or do I live in a squat apartment someplace? Like, you know, what, are the, what what's the better option here? And then as I got older and as I started getting more into my career, you know, those, those questions were basically the same questions. It was like, what's the next step to move me forward? Um, what's at least the thing that I can do that won't make me fall backwards? And then everything else is pretty simple after that. It was like, just keep making those decisions. Now, the problem is, and I think this is also part of what we're just saying, he's like, you got to look up from time to time. You know, you can't just keep looking at your feet and like, look at the next step that you're taking. You have to be able to take the long view and think more strategically. And I think that was only after I got out of this kind of survival mode um, that I was able to move up that hierarchy of needs, if you will, and actually get to a place where I was able to think a little bit more long-term and think, you know, on a 10-year time frame or maybe a 20-year time frame. So what point did you start having an opportunity to do work with Google? Like where did where did that transition happen? Because now you're at Google and you and and you're loving it. Google's great and you know full disclosure Google is one of our um, agency clients. But did, did you did you pick up an opportunity as you know you know, Nicholas Whitaker films or what, where did that come from? It was literally a bolt of lightning. You know, it was, it was, um, completely random. I was getting with one of my ex-girlfriends that I was just talking about a minute ago, we were out getting Mexican food and having a bit of a, a row, uh, over God knows what at the time. And I looked across the room and there was a buddy of mine, or actually he's now a friend of mine at the time. I was actually friends with his girlfriend I saw them having food across the Mexican restaurant that we were at and couldn't deal with the conversation I was having at the moment anymore. So I kind of got up and laughed and was just like, hey, what's going on? And like kind of connected with them. We ended up going back and getting drinks on the roof of our building in Brooklyn. And that's when he was asking me, he was like, hey, you know, at the time I had my production company, I was also teaching at two universities in New York. And he was like, do you know any of your students who might be interested in this opportunity to do training videos for Google? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. And that was, that was the opportunity, you know, and it it was a lower paying gig than what I was making now. And he even kind of deferred. He was like, you know, I just, it doesn't seem like this would be kind of up your alley. But I mean, I was staring down the barrel of an enormous amount of debt. This was in 2010, just, you know, worst period economically for creatives, I think in New York city until more recently. 
and you know wages were getting cut in half uh like the the gigs that i was actually doing were getting smaller and smaller like a lot of the bigger clients i had were just drying up and i was basically having to make a pretty big decision as to like can i continue to survive in this economy with this type of work or could i just take this opportunity temporarily and see what happens oh so wait it was it was a temporary opportunity it wasn't it wasn't a contract for your agency, it was like, we need you to actually come in and do this for us. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Fill work. Yeah. I was was working, I think at the time it was for workforce logic was the temp agency that I had ended up contracting through. Okay. Um, But it was a huge drop. I mean, it was like, and, and right before that opportunity presented itself, I had actually taken another turn just prior to that and basically went in house as an in house production crew of one for a heating oil website. It was like a, a, a informational website about heating oil and the heating oil industry, which is about as far away from what I might be interested in doing with my time as you could think. But it turned out to be a really great gig. It paid well, it gave me a little bit of breathing room. And then this Google gig came along uh, and I took that. And within about a year, I had sold most of my gear. I had spun down most of my client work. Uh, anything else that I had going on, I handed off to the folks that I had been subcontracting with and I, I walked away. How long did you have your own company before this bolt of lightning happened when you were having a fight with your girlfriend in a bar? I mean, <laughs> like, what's... Uh... I'm having a strong argument. But yeah, it was about, uh, about nine and a half years. Oh, goodness. Okay. And so... Yeah, you were you were starting to just you were exhausted. You're like, I cannot. I don't think this is this is not meant for me. I don't want to. It just do wasn't it. sustainable anymore. Wasn't sustainable. Okay. Did you feel like you were losing something? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was something I had built from scratch. You know, and it, it was I had a lot of pride wrapped up in the quality of work that I did. I had a lot of pride in the fact that I was able to pay other people and, and support them. Um, I really felt like I was doing good work. You know, I was really proud of that work, you know, to, so to walk, to walk away from it, or for more importantly, to, to be confronted with a situation which was forcing my hand, that was hard. That was really like a complicated and like emotionally charged period in time. So I kind of came into working for Google with a big chip on my shoulder, like immediately. And actually, I remember having a really serious conversation with a buddy of mine. We were sitting on the Brooklyn promenade looking over at the city and he was like, you know, you have to take this gig. You know, I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't want to work for a company, especially a corporation. Like, I don't know about this whole capitalism thing, you know. You know, and he's like, no, no, you got to do this. And he's like, you got to do it because you're, you can. You have the opportunity, you know. And, and basically what he was saying at the time is like, you have the privilege to be able to do it. You should take it. So you talked about a little bit about your fears around capitalism. Did you have any other fears going into Google, which is a massive corporation after being so independent? I think my biggest fear was that I was going to be found out. <laughs> uh, that's the, still the latent fear uh, that I have is at some point someone's going to figure out that I'm not qualified enough. I don't know enough. You know, I don't come from this world because I didn't go to an Ivy League school. You know, I would never worked in those environments really as an insider before. Um, I just didn't swim in those circles. Uh, so there was a lot of imposter syndrome. There's a lot of feelings of inadequacy, uh, which I overcompensated with just working harder, you know, which has always been my default. And that led to burnout very quickly. What type of work did you start doing at Google and how has it evolved? 
So I basically started doing training videos and marketing videos for the Google Earth team. And that contract, I think it was about a six to nine month long contract, which I managed to get extended uh, a few times uh, beyond, I think, what was even appropriate uh, for that setup back then. And then I moved from that into this new team that kind of formulated around the elections. Uh, and during that period of time, I think it was around 2012 uh, is when that really kind of started to form. And that was a Google for Media team. And it was really designed to work with broadcast news organizations and some of the top newsrooms in New York, showing them how to use things like Google Earth, Google Maps. Uh, at the time, you might remember Google Plus, uh, Google Plus Hangouts uh, and Hangouts on Air uh, to broadcast news to new audiences. And I had studied a lot of this uh, in college. I mean, this was basically what I was teaching my students uh, in, in undergrad. Um, so it was a good fit, and it was just a really interesting opportunity to kind of jump in feet first. Uh, but even that was a contract role. You know, so at Google, there's contractors, there's vendors, and there's full-timers um, and temps. So I actually have I've had each one of those uh, opportunities to, to serve Google in those roles uh, throughout my career. So, Nicholas, you have served in all of those different roles. When you were working, you know, at Google as, at, you know, temp or TBC, whatever you were, were you still dealing with the baggage of your old company and not being able to make that work? And were you still, I mean, what was what was happening in your mind? Because, you know, the reason I ask, sometimes I do wonder, I'm like, maybe I should just chuck all this up and just go back inside. And we talked about this in the beginning. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, are, you know, it depends. I mean, some of us are exhausted, but we still keep going. And some of us are like, you know what, I'm done. I'm going back in. You know, what was, what was happening to your life at that, that time in the, probably within the first year? When did you, when did you finally look back and say, I'm done? Well, you know, it was, it was interesting because I think there was a lot of personal growth that was going on during that period of time. You know, I had been coming up out of, you know, quite frankly, substance abuse. I had been coming up out of poverty. I had been coming up out of income instability, uh, housing instability, uh, definite instability in my relationships uh, with my partners as well as with my family. So there was there was not there was no real solid ground to stand on at that period in time, and I was grasping for any kind of a life preserver. You know, so I think for me the shift wasn't as painful in the moment. It wasn't like, oh man, I'm really just giving up everything that I really am passionate about and care about in order to like do this other thing. It was more like, this is a lifesaver. Like this is a, this is an opportunity. And, you know, I think it was only a little bit later on, like once I actually kind of settled in and I was, you know, getting work a little bit more regularly through Google. And I saw this as potentially being what I would be doing for the foreseeable future. I think it was during that period of time that I started to really reckon with it. And, and I was missing the creativity more than anything. It wasn't so much even owning my own business and saying that I had this thing. It was the creative outlet. That was what I was really frustrated uh, that I wasn't able to, to really focus on as much. Um, and then I think what very quickly happened after that is like once I got in and once I realized what the demands were of the role uh, what the perceived demands were of needing to keep up with everyone else around me, then it became a workaholism thing. You know, so I just kind of plowed myself into this role and into the work that I was doing. And, and this, this 
anticipation of potentially getting hired full-time, that became the new target. And then everything became about that. So how did you understand that there was an anticipation of potentially getting hired? And, you know, this is always a conversation that always happens with people. How do I get a job at Google? And and that's not what I'm asking you right now, but where where did it become a thing in your mind where you're like, I am definitely going to get this job. Yeah. Well, that, that was still the question I was asking myself. Like, how do I get a job at Google? It was a constant right. mission of, look, I got my foot in the door. This is a rare opportunity. There's got to be a way to turn this into something more long-term. And I think those early conversations I had with Rich and the support that I had in my friends and my network at the time put me into a perspective of like, look, just do it, like make it happen. There's got to be a way. You know, so that was really my whole approach and my perspective to that role. And the main, the main chunk of that was networking and just like selling, marketing myself, and like making sure people understood what I was capable of and, and off saying yes, just saying yes to a whole lot. What did you say yes to that moved you into wellness? How did that happen? Yeah, so that came way later. You know, I, um, what I said yes to was recognizing the fact that I had post-traumatic stress disorder and I was having a nervous breakdown. Like that's what I said yes to, <laughs> you know, it, it came, it came up, uh, on the floor of a hotel room, uh, in a city several thousand miles away from where I lived while I was on a business trip. And I woke up thought, th- thinking I was having a heart attack, you know, and I couldn't really figure out what was happening. I think what I realized, you know, very, very quickly was that what was happening to me internally, emotionally, uh, my ability to cope and to deal with stress, to interact with other people, my lack of ability of doing that, being able to do that was undermining this potential opportunity of a full-time gig at Google. So for me, it was like, I need to, I need to keep it together and I need help. You know? So I think that was the first thing I said yes to. The wellness stuff came much later. Um, it started with therapy. It started with talking with other people. It started with just accepting the fact that that's what was happening. And then I started finding other avenues. Do you think that you would have been able to maintain your business had you incorporated wellness and meditation into your daily life earlier? I think if I would have had more emotional intelligence, if I would have had different skills in terms of managing stress, managing managing anxiety, I probably would have had less of a catastrophic experience as the economy is crashing. I might have had a longer view and I might have been able to prepare better and pivot better. But I think, you know, that was the lesson I actually should have learned from my parents. And it, it strikes me now as we're thinking about it, that that was what happened with my dad. Like he just didn't have the skills to pivot. He took it personally. It became a thing and he just wasn't able to move on from it. I got lucky because I was able to pour myself into something slightly different to give me enough runway to be able to process all of that. Do you think companies like Google should be looking for more entrepreneurial employees? Is that is that the type of characteristic that tech companies should be seeking? 
I think so. I mean, you know, I think Google does a pretty good job of that as it is. You know, a lot of the folks that, that I mean, there's obviously more work that can always be done to diversify the hiring pool and making sure that they, they have unique and differing voices and experiences. And I think that's probably one of the things that I've noticed the most is that that's been something I've been able to offer most of the teams that I've been a part of. You know, as soon as like someone says like, well, you know, let's give the trivia question, like two things that are true and like one lie about you. I always say as the lie, which I won't be able to use after this, is that, yeah, I've had 36 jobs and people are like, ah, eh, no, it's not, not, not at all possible. And it's like, yeah, no, that is actually possible. That's exactly what you have to do to survive. And that's always an interesting conversation starter. But, you know, I think in terms of like the, the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, I think people that are creative, that are seeking for solutions, that are yes oriented, uh, that are willing to put their neck out there. Like, I think those are the people that are, are really most successful. Jinja, you and I have talked about this. There's an inertia to the current situation that you're in. The delta, the energy that you need to break the gravitational pull of your current situation is often double or triple what you're giving to maintain the status quo. So what makes a person who has to already work three times, four times as hard to get to a different level, how are you able to say, I think I'm a workaholic? Where do you draw that line? I mean, entrepreneurship in general, I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs, that's what they are. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you talk, Nicholas, thinking to myself, he's not really doing much different than he was doing when he was working on his own. He's just doing it for Google. You know what I mean? He's still the same guy. Yeah, I'd love you to talk about that. I mean, I struggle with it myself. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a struggle, period. You know, I think it's a product of our culture. I think it's a product of the models of capitalism and the models of work that we've been brought up into, you know? If, you know, from a standpoint of imposter syndrome, you know, we could, we could just take it from there to start. You know, I think imposter syndrome manifests most often uh, when you've come from a place of lack or when you come from a perceived place of lacking. You know, either you think that you're not good enough or you think that the skills, the perceived skills that you have are less than the perceived demands that you have put upon you. There's an equation there that you need to deal with. Um, and if you're not equipped with the right vocabulary to describe like what your experience is you might just speak to it as i'm just working as hard as i need to to survive right you might just talk about it in those terms i'm just doing the extra work that i need to to get to the same level as my peers the problem with that thinking though is that you don't know what your peers are going through you know you don't know where they've come from you don't know where along the starting line they started at right so here you are, you're running this marathon, you got all these other people around you and you're just, you're just dogging, right? You're just like not surviving. You know, you're not, not doing as well as you think you should be as compared to everybody else that keeps blasting past you. It's not necessarily putting in too many hours, right? It's really about where is your focus of attention? You know, are you giving the same type of intensity and attention to your love life, to your relationships, to your life with yourself? Like there's a balance there that has to happen. You know, and I think where people get into trouble is where they're not really giving their energy to those those other marriages, if you will, uh, and really devoting that type of energy to everything that they're doing. Now, can you do everything at 100% all of the time? Of course not. You know, there's there's levers there. You have to uh, you have to adjust depending on what the demands are. 
But I think that the tendency is people would just say, okay, well, if I just put more hours in, if I grind out a little bit longer, if I sleep a little bit less, somehow that's going to get me ahead. And I would say, net, net, it puts you farther behind. When you're an entrepreneur, if you decide to go back inside, how do you know what company to go back inside to? When I think about this sometimes, when I'm having my darkest moments of being a business owner, <laughs> I like, go open the LinkedIn job pages and I'm like, okay, where can I go? And you accidentally fell into this role. Do you have a better understanding of if you were trying to be intentional about leaving entrepreneurship, what do you look for to know that you're going to the right place? Yeah, you know, I think a big piece of that question is maybe a set of questions that you would need to ask yourself, you know, uh, anybody that was maybe trying to make that leap. You know, for me, it was about impact. Like at the time, I was really most interested in documentary film. I was most interested in education. I was most interested in helping better helping people better understand how the internet works, how communication works and where people get knowledge from. Like that was the core of what I was interested in. So I studied in school and early days, that was the kind of documentary work that I wanted to do, but unfortunately that just doesn't pay the bills. So I was doing commercials and I was doing training videos and things like that. And I was able to kind of slowly pivot my work more and more and more into training videos and education, which felt right. Uh, And so this opportunity that came up through Google was like, well, shoot, like here's an opportunity to like really have an outsized impact. Like I can reach instead of a hundred people at a screening or maybe a couple thousand people if I put a video online and get lucky, uh, I can reach tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people. And that's what really excited me about Google. And to this day, it still excites me about Google. Um, different needs for different people. You know, I think if it's, you know, you're, you're more interested in uh, environmental issues, if you're more interested in civic issues, like there's different companies that you're going to need to make decisions about what you're doing. But for me, being on the forefront of internet technology and communication, that was exciting to me. And that, that felt like it feels still like a good fit. But sometimes though, when you're an entrepreneur, it's not about the industry. It's about your temperament. It's about where will I actually fit in? Like, how will I continue to have my independent streak and work at a company? I mean, that's the, that's the thing that stops entrepreneurs, right? I mean, have you learned anything since you've gone inside to say, if I know, knew then what I knew now, what I know now, I would be looking here. Or maybe you'd say, I should have looked here. I could have tried this too. I mean, that's what my biggest struggle is. I just don't know where I would fit in. It's not about the industry. Yeah, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of preconceived ideas that people form form about companies. You know, before they've actually spent time inside them. You know, I think that there's there's some degree of truth to that. Where each company has its own culture. It's got its own processes. You know, there's specific ways of being that you can flex into at certain companies and, and certain ones that you can't. So I think it's hard to say, like as a whole to like paint with a broad brush corporate America uh, as being a thing because it's very, very different across the board depending on what type of company you're in. But I think what I often talk to people about 
you know, whether it's coaching people internally at Google about what career moves they're trying to make, if it's somebody who's asking, how do I get a job at Google? Or if it's somebody who's deciding, like, do I want to leave my entrepreneurial endeavor and move to a corporate gig? You know, the questions that I ask is like, well, what's important to you right now? What's going to be important to you in five years? And what's going to be important to you in 10 years? You know, it seems very trite, but I think these are good benchmarks. And a lot of people, I think they get hung up on like, well, right now in this very moment, you know, to, 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 to just be clear about it, like when I first started working at Google, it was like, I'm never going to work at a corporation. You know, like I'm not that big into capitalism. Like I don't really support these ideas. Like this isn't really how I want to operate. I want to be like, working in a communal environment and like, you know, quasi-socialist, you know, scenarios. Like that's kind of like where I was thinking I was going to end up. But it turns out that didn't pay the bill so great at the time, you know. And for me, like the long-term view of thinking like, well, we're – where could I be in five, 10, 20 years if I applied myself and really just said yes to these opportunities? That is what opened up the doors to other possibilities. And then once I got here, then it was like, okay, how do I be me more in this role? Can I do that with this team? The, the team that I was on previously, not so much. This newer team that I'm on, absolutely. And they've opened these opportunities for me to really flex into the things like wellness and mindfulness and all of those things that I really needed to, to express. There's so many different opportunities at a company like Google and for any tech company, I might add, it's not even just Google, right? I mean, if you're going to work at Facebook, for God's sakes, find out how they make their money first. I mean, so, you know, you got to know where, where's their bottom line. Look at their annual report. I mean, what exactly does it take? I mean, do you need to just, you know, go say, how do I learn what Google is or, how do I learn how to buy an ad? Like, what does it mean to, you know, be prepared aside from the internal work? Yeah, I mean, to your point, there's so many different possible roles at Google. Like, I'm in a role now that's so far removed from where I started. Uh, it almost is like two separate companies. And even the company has evolved over time, too. You know, so I think not to dis- not to discredit the work and the skills around emotional intelligence. I think that's an important thing that people overlook. They're like, oh, that's a soft skill. That's something that I can do afterwards. But I think being able to communicate effectively, being able to talk about what you're passionate about and being able to share that with other people, getting being able to enlist other people un- in your cause, whether that cause be getting a job at Google full-time or whatever it might be, those are critical components to success. And I think people tend to overlook that in, in favor of more hard skills. They're like, oh, well, if I just learn how to use spreadsheets better. It's like, that stuff comes. You'll figure that out. I think the thing that I've seen people be most successful in is that they really over-index on the emotional awareness and emotional intelligence and understanding where their feelings and needs begin and end and where somebody else's feeling and needs begin and end. Like that's a huge, huge, huge component, whether that's on a team, a manager, an individual. And then everything after that in terms of like the brass tack stuff that you need to be able to actually be qualified to be working at Google. I think it's having a diverse background. I'm like not a hiring manager, so I don't really know what the criteria is. But my guess would be it's people who have a diverse background of experiences. It's people who are excited about the industry and where it's going. Uh, It's people who are willing to stick their neck out there and take big chances because that's kind of how Google rolls. What is one piece of technology you'd like to see come to fruition that could change the world? Well, there's a few that come to mind. You know, I think universal access to broadband internet 
I think that would be a, a huge component. You know, I grew up in the middle of central Pennsylvania. We had dial-up internet up until I left high school. Uh, they still had dial-up internet years later. You know, there's large swaths of the United States that just don't have access to the speeds that they need for really the level of education that we're doing now. Like the fact that we're, uh, you know, able to talk pretty seamlessly over the internet right now is not possible for a large, large portion of the world. So I think that's a big piece of it. Um, I would love, it's not so much a technology, uh, but I think, you know, having better access to mental health, mental health care is, is a huge component. I would love to see something more along those lines to help make it more equitable and more easily accessible for folks. Um, particularly now, because I think that we have a pretty bad mental health crisis coming down the pike uh, that, that's going to need to be addressed. And I don't know that we really have the tools to address those in the ways that they need to be right now. If you could ask one thing of one of the world's most powerful brands, and I'll actually give you two since you're in the media space, what would you ask the New York Times, and which is a newspaper, of course, but they're also online? And then what would you ask Fox News? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think it's the question, the answer would be the same, you know, the question would be the same for, for any organization. And, and I think a lot of these organizations have the right ethos. And I think that they value the relationship with their audience. I think that their overall goal is to inform, is to help give people knowledge to make decisions about their own lives. It's to help build a more robust democracy. You know, I think it, in principle, that's what most of these companies are supposed to be doing. And I would, I would say for any organization to take a real hard look at their stated values and their practical, what they actually put into practice values. Like, what are they actually exhibiting? And the worry that I have with a lot of the industry, uh, whether that be new media or old media, is it's this drifting away from integrity. It's drifting away from the core value of informing the populace to provide value. And it, it either shifts into entertainment or it shifts into political dogma and it shifts into towing some other line that I don't think is really in the best interest of the audience uh, that they're supposedly serving. So it's not a specific call to action to any one organization, but I think it's a more broad statement. And I would actually paint this more broadly for tech companies as well. You know, making sure that you're living to some higher set of values and that you have the end user in mind and the best interests of that end user in mind. Because at the end of the day, it's all of us, right? That's what makes for a functioning democracy. And I think that's, I think that's something that needs to be very vigilantly paid attention to. Thank you so much for being on the show, Nick, and sharing your journey with us. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. And I'm Nick. It's a pleasure. And this is The Honest Field Guide. We'll talk to you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. 